0: Five, four, three, two, one. I'm David Cronenberg.
1: It's kind of nice hearing the music for the movie over the uh, Universal logo. I can't even remember if they have their own music, but uh, we've supplied our own. Film Plan, Film Plan to Take Over the World, an interesting name for a filmmaking company. Kind of ominous, I always thought. Maybe more ominous than the name Video drum. So right from the Universal logo, you're already kind of unsettled, and it's because of Howard Shore's wonderful score for the movie, which was subversive and perverse and unsettling without it all being obvious. Civic TV, the one you take to bed with you. Here we have Civic TV. Now, Civic TV is basically inspired by City TV, which is a uh, Toronto invention of Moses Nehmer, who's considered quite a visionary when it comes to television. And he invented the idea and implemented it of a small local city television station that would be very responsive to what was going on in the city and included interviews with people in the streets constantly and so on. And it was really quite an interesting invention. And also, was the first channel to show softcore porn films. They were called the Baby Blue Movies, and they became quite popular in Toronto. You could only get it in Toronto. And so uh, the idea of that kind of television station, very small, very controllable, and really the invention of one person, was the inspiration for Civic TV here. I think at a certain point, Moses Namor did think that I had based the lead character played by Jimmy Woods on him, but really, I didn't.
0: This is Mark Irwin, cinematographer on Videodrome. So City TV as a template became somewhat provocative, and Toronto itself as a city was the first in North America to become wired, to become cable TV. So this was a cable station. As a result, because it wasn't being broadcast, its standards were a little looser than the CRTC was aware of uh, their ability to control. They have now become huge, and City TV and much music, Chum Radio... They are the MTV of Canada.
1: I was very excited to be working with Jimmy, who, to me, really embodied that kind of intensity and sort of articulate, inventive character that I had written in the script, and with which I identified to a certain extent. There are not a lot of American actors who are known for being ultra-articulate. The American tradition tends to be inarticulate in the Marlon Brando kind of way, and uh, Jimmy plays completely against that kind of American archetype.
0: Well, David's take on Max was quite distinct, but I think when Jimmy got a hold of the character and was motivated to do certain things, he really ran with it, and, and David just stepped back. I don't think James Woods is actually technically a Hollywood actor, a member of Mensa from uh, Rhode Island. He's kind of unique in that regard. And I think David was challenged and probably inspired by a lot of the takes that uh, Jimmy had on Max. I looked over the stills. We did modify a lot of locations. And as you can see with this white wall behind you, I wish we could have done more than just rent a hotel room. Would have been nice to paint the wall, but what can I say?
1: This man that you're seeing right now later became the Ontario Minister of Culture. His name was David Sabuki. And he uh, then had to answer many questions about his past acting as a porn salesman in a very controversial movie by David Cronenberg. Here we have Samurai Dreams. So I ended up, for the first time in my life, directing two very soft Core porn movies because I wanted to have done it all I didn't want someone else to have directed these little sort of porn movies and originally this shot that you're seeing was cut from the release of the film there were many strange things cut some things not so strange some things quite strange just supporting my contention that censorship is always very personal and has very much to do with the sensibility of the person who's being censorious there are no rules so basically someone who just doesn't like shots of phallus-like objects will take them out of the movie even though there's no legal precedent for it perhaps no sexual precedent Here we have the boys of Civic TV sitting around trying to decide, in essence, what would be their version of the baby blue movies. What would they show that was distinguishing their small channel from other channels that would be too conservative to play the kind of things that they are interested in showing their audience.
0: Reiner Schwartz, the gentleman on the left with the pencil, was a chum FM DJ in the, uh, the growing years of FM radio stations. Reiner Schwartz was one of the leaders in the Toronto scene. And we begin here to see that Max
1: Wren, and by the way, the Wren Max was a racing motorcycle. Wren means race in German. I was very obsessed with motorcycles at the time, I have to say. There's something personal as well in his interest in extreme sexuality and violent sexuality. It's not just that he thinks the marketplace is ready for it. There's something in him that's drawn to it, and he feels that if he's drawn to it, then there will be an audience that's drawn to it as well.
0: The fact that so many of us had worked with David and had also worked on documentaries and much, much lower-budget movies, it was easy to change and run fast. And There was a sort of a enthusiasm that had legs. There was a lot of laughter. I think it was probably the offset of having somebody whipped and electrocuted on camera that you get to joke about it in some crazy way. We found this place, I don't know, was in a basement or something, with all the scratched degraded paint. That was the real deal. It was quite a challenge to make sure it didn't scrape off the wall when guys were putting ladders around to uh, set lights. But it's funny to see things that have knobs and uh, waveform monitors and probably tubes somewhere in them. Not a whole lot of solid state here. Not that it wasn't around at the time but uh, it was nice to prop this retro hacker satellite uh, scamming kind of guy. This was way in advance of anything cellular, anything digital This was the analog world of television and yet david was thinking as they say outside the box or outside the the videodrome
1: country of origin Uh, and here he has his technocrat his technomaniac harlan his satellite nerd i guess you'd call him then this was before the internet and really before the advent of computers in a personal way it's hard to believe it was that long ago but it was But there were nerds even before there was the Internet and before there were computers, and Harlan is one of those. But perhaps we sense here that Harlan is more than just a nerd, and we will see later that that is very, very true. What
0: is that wall behind you? What is that, clay? Yeah, white clay. I think it's electrified.
1: This scene is really an elaborate version of what was the core for me of the invention of the story idea of Videodrome. As a kid, we had a television set with an antenna that rotated, and you could rotate it from inside your house, and you, you, when the major channels would go off the air, you could rotate it and pick up strange other channels from smaller cities around, from across the border, and Buffalo and so on, and you would see strange things that were kind of hard to see. There was a lot of static, and it was very intriguing to watch that kind of thing, and that was really the the core, the crystal at the center of this movie, was my experience with that, thinking, well, what if the images that you pulled up were really quite extreme, disturbing, uh, possibly illegal, and what would you think then? Would you keep seeking out those channels, or would you call the police, or what would you do? How would you respond to that? Jimmy has a lovely comic flair. He can really do it all.
0: I getting just a little nervous even, even if you've been
1: doing it all your life, don't you think? Oh, yeah. In this scene, the interview with Nikki Brand was also provoked in me by an interview that I did with uh, a woman who was very much like Nikki Brand, uh, even though I never got to know her personally. But on the show, she was very seductive. She wore a red dress. She was very sexually provocative. And I said some of the things to her that I have Max say to Nikki who is played by Debbie Harry in one of her earliest film roles. Of course, here we're introduced to Professor Brian Oblivion, who is based very much on Marshall McLuhan, the communications guru who became quite famous in the 60s and afterwards for his uh, understanding media and his Gutenberg Galaxy books.
0: Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else.
1: Here we have Max giving a rather flippant response to the question of violence and how violent imagery and violence in the media and how people respond to violence and does it make them more violent or not. And, of course, Professor Oblivion gives a very complex response to that same question, as I'm sure Marshall McLuhan would have in the same circumstances. He was really quite brilliant, and he did teach at the University of Toronto when I was there, but to my everlasting regret, I never actually took any courses with him, but his influence was very much felt everywhere in the university. He was really quite a brilliant scholar and a brilliant thinker. He's famous, of course, for saying, the medium is the message. But his intellect went a lot further than just a slogan like that. It's very stimulating,
0: and it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I, I managed did. to have <laughs> this potted plant growing out of everybody's head. I can't believe I did that. But anyway, there it is. This was kind of loosely based on a city TV interview show with someone called Dini Petty, who had been, I think, the traffic and weather girl at CFTO, and she was kind of elevated to this new talk show person. I think the biggest stumbling block, from my perspective, in shooting Videodrome was how to get these video images onto the screen, because we were going to run real-time NTSC images. And how do we get that without any, because this was before we had any sync boxes, anything like that. We ended up shooting it with a separate camera that had a fixed TV shutter in it. And that seemed to be the best for eliminating any roll bars, any big roll bars. We did have a pencil-thin one that would move very slowly. All in all, it was a challenge to balance things to the TV sets. And then the pumps and motors and all kinds of stuff causing interference.
1: I'm not sure. He's certainly a menace to me. And here we're on the video drum set.
0: When does the plot uh, start to unravel here? I mean, who is this black guy? Is he political?
1: What you just saw, I think, was also cut in the initial release of the film. It's interesting what people read into movies when they're feeling censorious. I was accused of having a scene where a man was being castrated in this case. And certainly what was being done to him was bad enough electrodes applied to the testicles. But it wasn't a scene of castration, despite what the MPAA thought it was. Uh, they made me cut it, or most of it.
0: I can't take your eyes off it. It's, it's incredibly realistic. Where do they get actors
1: who can do this? Oh, help me. I think he wants it. It's always been my pleasure to find Canadian actors who have not done a lot of movie work, but who are terrific actors and, and therefore are kind of a revelation on screen because people haven't seen them before. Peter Dvorsky was one of those. He'd done quite a bit of Canadian stuff that I'd seen, but I don't think he'd done much that had gone international. He was a real revelation as Harlan. He just had such a wonderful texture, such a sly way of underplaying, just a lovely voice. I didn't cast him because he was a techno nerd or anything like that, but apparently he's developed some very interesting software and has pretty much given up acting.
0: Jimmy had a certain strut, you know? He's a kind of a scrawny, lean intellectual who trotted around in his little leather jacket, and he looked really cool. He had this... Uh, drawn kind of face with a dimple chin he was a good combination with debbie harry
1: i've got your number haven't i (laughs) debbie of course was famous as a singer performer her band was blondie and they were huge they really were huge in their time and not just as a band but as a kind of essential part of the cultural zeitgeist of new york city and she knew William Burroughs and Ellen Ginsberg, and was connected with everything that was going, in, especially in New York, and a kind of uh, underground, above-ground culture at the time. But she was not an experienced actress. That was a thing. So we spent a lot of time discussing the difference between performing on stage, which she was terrific at, and performing for the camera, which she was a neophyte at. But she was very responsive and very willing to learn and to understand that the kind of self-parody and satirical stuff that she did on stage simply did not work when she was trying to play a real character, a human being, on
0: screen. Ain't exactly sex.
1: Says who? Needless to say, it was quite strange working with extras on the set naked being tortured most of the people we worked with really kind of enjoyed the experience because it was cathartic of course they weren't really being hurt and they were getting a lot more attention than an extra normally gets and we we found in one case there was a woman who kept coming back she kept visiting the set she would dress up and Put on a lot of makeup and dress herself really well, and just kind of hang around. She she couldn't let go of the experience of being tortured on the video drum set. It was quite strange, and but very much in keeping with the strangeness of the film as a whole. I wonder how you get to be a contestant on this show. I don't
0: know. I had quite a challenge lighting Debbie's face. She had a very has a very interesting face, and the, the classic soft wraparound soft light was not going to work or did not work very well with her. And by default, I found out how to uh, bring out the beauty in her. At the time, she was, and still is, quite a striking woman, but she had two kind of furrows diagonally from uh, either side of her nose from her eyes. And uh, with this kind of soft light, uh, this was kind of electronic fireplace, TV, interactive light. I still couldn't get rid of those little furrows. And it was up to me, especially after the horror story I had on scanners with Jennifer O'Neill. I had to make her look as glamorous as possible. Obviously, that was the edict. This was, in my view, the electronic fireplace. That's what the urban landscape has promoted. And trying to get the light to come out of the TV was always fun. Balancing the lighting for any scene that has a television set running in it is always a challenge, primarily because the TV is a fixed level. It's usually T2.8, so taking everything down to that level is fine, but when you want to pretend that that is the only source of light and to try to get the light coming out of the TV just requires a little more technique, I guess. This scene,
1: a scene of ear piercing, was really suggested to me when my wife asked me to help her put in her pierced earrings because she was having trouble doing it. And uh, I found that I almost, once I actually got the earring through her earlobe, I found myself almost fainting. It was quite a strange and strong response, which which surprised me. And I thought, for a kind of mini sadomasochistic experience, uh, ear piercing wasn't, was kind of potent in its own small way. And that was the the genesis of this particular scene. If you want to gently introduce someone into the world of sadomasochism, then maybe getting them to pierce your ears isn't a bad way to do it. Needless to say, Debbie's ears were already pierced, so we didn't have to actually pierce her ears. This is a scene where there was also some censorship involved. At this point, the camera starts to pull back. And we see that we are no longer in Max Wren's living room, but in fact, we're on the Videodrome set. When it was suggested that I had to, well, it was more than suggested, demanded that I cut this scene, that we could only show them having this kind of sex for a few seconds. I don't know how these things are judged, Why? Four seconds is okay and eight seconds isn't. But the solution was that I would just show the beginning of the shot and a quick little pop back to the end of the shot. And I I said, well, but then you won't be able to notice that there's a kind of strange hallucination going on in Max's mind that he's suddenly having sex on the Videodrome set in his TV set in a way. And uh, I was told no one had actually noticed that at the MPAA anyway, and that therefore no one in the audience would notice it, so it was no loss. That was basically
0: their attitude. I've worked with a lot of directors who will do scenes that they know they have to cut down or or cut out, because they're throwaways. They they call them gimmies, and they'll do a scene that's really over-the-top, and the censor, to get a rating, they'll say, "Okay, we'll lose that. We'll cut this down. We'll cut out our breast scene. Don't worry about it. Okay, you got an R. And they had no intention of using the scene. At that time, David wanted, this is my film. This is the story, I want to tell the story, and I don't want you guys to censor it. See, David had gone through hell with the censors in Ontario because in Ontario, films aren't given a rating. The censor board will cut the footage out. So the films that would open in Ontario, and they said, well, it's only censored in Ontario. Well, that doesn't help because it opens in Toronto and the same print goes all over the country. So it's censored everywhere. And David's run-ins with the uh, the censor board were legendary. And yet he kept making more and more provocative films that would take him over the line every time. I was lucky. I started in the film business in Toronto, shooting softcore porno films. So I learned a lot that was otherwise the other side of the tracks for most people. Starting off in the film business in 73, which was 10 years before this, there was no industry to start into. And that summer, in fact, there was a porno film called Diary of a Sinner, that was shooting. Believe it or not, shot with a Mitchell. <laughs> in 35, there was no videotape, and we had shot it all in short ends. And at the same time, Warner Brothers was doing a sequel to Summer 42 at University of Toronto. That was a big union show, so I ended up on the porno film. And we would literally shoot anything, all as freelance guys, anything and everything. So industrials, documentaries, porno films, after-school specials, they all had no budget, and you all learned how to make do with less than less, in fact. You interested in uh tracking it down for me i'll
1: see that you get the agent's commission i'm interested let me try i love this character the character of masha she reminds me of many many strong european women that i have known in my past of a certain age very sexual not at all treating their age the way north american women tend to being very flirtatious and very aware of their sexuality and not at all apologetic about it And yet Masha is, for all her worldliness, really quite an innocent. And Max, almost unconsciously, is not. Would you do video drawing? Jimmy was really pretty delightful on the set. I mean, he really was fun to work with for me and I think for everybody else as well. First of all, he likes women and he likes working with women and uh, he adapted really easily. And with, with Debbie in particular, she's very funny and she was very capable of keeping up with Jimmy in terms of humor and energy and wisecracks.
0: Isn't that where they make video drama? Yeah, why? I'm
1: going to audition.
0: I got off on these slats of light on the scene and ended up, With the venetians kind of fooling around with uh, more shadows the hope was to keep more in shadow and more in question and try to make each scene as they went along gloomier and gloomier but i realized here in this scene i had lost that particular furrow that little groove in debbie's face and it was the hard light that did it and i realized with soft light you can wrap around something so that someone is lit the same from all directions from below as well as above from the side to the top but when you light them with a hard light there's only one shadow. You can eliminate most of those problems.
1: Of course, we see here a scene which completes the brand part of Nikki Brand's name. The Nikki part was the cuts on her shoulder, and the brand part is coming up, branding with a cigarette. A little bit tacky, perhaps, the naming, but I couldn't resist. This scene was another scene that was ripe for censorship because... The idea of a woman burning herself with a cigarette and being masochistic and inviting a man to be sadistic with her was considered unacceptable. As a performer and as an actress, Debbie, of course, was pretty fearless about things like this. Being, as I say, part of that kind of subterranean zeitgeist, playing a scene like this was not a moral or ethical problem for her. She understood it. Max takes a cigarette, do we know what he does afterwards? We don't, but we can guess. Is Nikki drawing him into something, a part of himself that would be better left unexplored? And then the question is, does this movie draw its audience into arenas that are better left unexplored? And of course, that's the whole question. The the movie is really looking at itself in a way that I I don't think I had done quite before this. we have kind of innocent, ritualized sexuality in the the form of the belly dancer, while our protagonists talk about some perhaps less socially acceptable forms of sexuality.
0: I think we picked this Greek restaurant because of the elevation. The balcony was certainly not easy to shoot in. Uh, We were on the balcony, just teetering on the edge, but uh, I think the view... And the two shot is what sold it, and then most of the scene is played in the over, so it's hard to know. I think this scene is also a testament to how much weight is given to good writing and good performance. The traditional thing in now, 21 years later, is that MTV mentality will not allow people to sit still and talk for, what, three, four pages? It's impossible. We have to get them up. They have to do something.
1: There's a line here that I really like a lot, which is when Masha says, they have something that you don't have, Max. They have a philosophy. It has a philosophy, Videodrome. That's what makes it dangerous. It's always occurred to me that more people get murdered in the name of various religious or philosophical concepts than do out of of sheer animalistic anger and viciousness, and even out of sheer sexuality in the form of rape and pillage and so on. So I I do think that a movement that is basically perverse and murderous will be much more organized, focused, and popular if it has a philosophy behind it. I use philosophy, I suppose, in quotation marks because I have a great affection for philosophy when it's not in quotation marks.
0: It's easier and safer to fake it
1: because it has something that you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy, and that is what makes it dangerous. I was interested in this movie, of course, in following through on what people had said about some of my earlier movies, that is, that seeing movies that contain violent imagery might perhaps make people violent, more susceptible to violence. And I thought, well, let's play devil's advocate, my own devil's advocate, in this movie and say, well, let's say that that's true. Let's say that there is a form of television that involves violent sexual imagery that does make people violent. Of course, I'm stacking the deck against myself here because, as we later find out, the program Videodrome is designed to induce violent behavior in people, so it is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I
0: was willing to play with these concepts and see where they led. Like most films in those days which were done with uh, tax money, we would do them in the fourth quarter of the year, which meant October, November, December, at which point the sun would go down at four o'clock. So when you got to places like this, a huge restaurant for a whole day-long scene, you would have to tent the building, trace the windows, which is to put tracing paper or white diffusion material on all the windows, and then burn out all the windows So they look the same all day, because the day would end around 3.30. So it's not uncommon to see a sunny interior and then step outside and see grips out in the snow, climbing up towers, wearing parkas and gloves and mittens, and lighting up, just torching this building from outside, smoking all the windows so it looks warm and sunny inside.
1: Of course, in the 60s and 70s, strange religious and self-help kind of organizations were very, very popular. And I thought, what would a kind of Salvation Army kind of organization that was invented by Marshall McLuhan be like? And I came up with the Cathode Ray Mission,
0: and here it is. The Cathode Ray Mission was built in the interior of the Heinzmann Piano Factory as well as the exterior. We put up all these weird little partitions, and everybody had a ratty little TV set, and they were all fed a black and white image. And we had this little miniature crane that we built for this shot that started down a staircase, came across, and all the way through the room and ended up seeing the whole hall. And the crane was so useful, we ended up using it everywhere we could.
1: Trading food for religious conversion always seemed like a, an interesting and perhaps a bad thing deal for the people who were accepting the religion, actually, but uh, I was playing on that concept here. In a strange way, uh, Videodrome did anticipate quite a few things, and a lot of people have thought of this film as being very prophetic. I myself have never been interested in being a prophet of any kind, and I'm, I've never really even been interested in inventing science fiction that would anticipate technological development so that I could say, as, let's say, Arthur C. Clarke would say, that uh, I anticipated, he said, satellites 40 years before there were satellites and satellite communications. That, that, that doesn't really interest me. But when your antennae are out there waving in the breeze and you allow them to develop because you think of yourself as an artist, you will undoubtedly pick up some signals from somewhere in the video drum way that other people don't pick up. And I think it's inevitable, perhaps, that you anticipate things that other people have not. And I think you can see in the cathode ray mission an adumbration of those programs that are designed to bring the Internet to every impoverished country in order to connect its citizens with the world, to plug them back in, as Bianca Oblivion says, plug them back into the world's mixing board.
0: Carol Spear was the designer on this, as she has been in all of David's films, and she really came up with an incredible array of textures in this scene, the counterpoint between the partitions and the winos and the down-and-out people watching television and this inner sanctum. I think it's a style that's coming back. In their case, Mr. Wren, it's
1: not a style. The decor for this room, this office, was really also in a way inspired... By Marshall McLuhan and my understanding of him, because though he was considered, he was considered a prophet of technology and modern communications and so on, he was a scholar. He was a Catholic and he was a medieval scholar, and his understanding of things was very much conditioned by his awareness of history and past cultures. Something about McLuhan, I think, that was misunderstood by a lot of people who thought he just was thinking only forward and not backward as well, but he was really a great medievalist and historian. He may choose to send you a cassette. If he does, which format would you like? If he does, it's gonna make conversation a little difficult.
0: I think this was Sonia Smith's first feature film. She was a young actress who's since become a grand dame of English-Canadian actors. Very different look, very Greer Garson kind of uh, demeanor, very tall and angular. And quite a good foil for Debbie Harry, who was definitely a different shape entirely. You've never heard of it? At the time, Kodak made two film stocks, and now they make about 20. So at the time, you had a choice of one or the other. In this case, all of the black wood and dark wood in this scene needed to be lit separately from the actors' faces. So a set like this was quite a challenge, given the range of what the film stock could do. I was just reading the
1: novelist Martin Amos's autobiography in which he discusses a shift in the novel from being a kind of third-person perspective on the world to a first-person, a subjective perspective, with the idea that perhaps gradually the feeling of artists was that the only experience that they could truly mediate and comment on was their own experience. I suppose that you can see a little bit of that movement in my filmmaking as well, that it becomes much more subjective in first person. It's not something that I'm consciously doing it, and it has nothing to do with a movement in cinema that I want to attach myself to or anything like that. It perhaps, once again, is a kind of a movement of the times to a kind of monomania, a kind of self-obsession. And, of course, there are other traditions. There's a mystic tradition which says that the only way that you can experience everything is to truly go inwards and experience yourself. So maybe there's a little bit of that, although I don't think of myself at all as a mystic. But I admire films that are huge spectacles and deal with politics and many, many characters and a lot of uh, social issues and so on. It's not that I'm not interested in that kind of filmmaking, but when I do my own filmmaking, I tend to want to focus inwardly and become so intense and in that focus that many things are revealed. It's the, the Blakeian, all the world revealed in a grain of sand, I suppose, approach to filmmaking, as opposed to, if you want to see all the world, you look at the beach. Uh, uh, These are the first indications that the videodrome signal has in fact begun to affect Max's brain, causing him to hallucinate.
0: I think part of David's subtlety is the use of these uh, transitions, the hallucinations or the imagery of Bridie changing into uh, Debbie Harry and back again. In other words, there's no setup for it. It just happens, and you are flashed into it as an audience member the same way that Jimmy is. A hallucination feels real. And I've encountered this
1: in several of my movies, uh, the dead zone with visions that the Johnny Smith character has, and more recently in Spider, the Ray Fiennes character is is constantly hallucinating. But I've always felt that it would be a mistake to telegraph this, to have a color shift or optical distortion by using a very wide lens or, or any of the computer things that you could do now, because... A hallucination feels real to the person who's having it, and that's what makes it so scary. call you me? There's the preferred Videodrome format. It happens to be Betamax, the late lamented Betamax which later lost out to VHS, one of the great Titanic struggles. I chose it because it was smaller. (laughs) And in the scenes where it fits into strange places, these cassettes, uh, the Beta cassette was smaller and therefore a better choice.
0: To have David think of something that was based on a premise that everything is possible if it's recorded on a recordable medium, in this case, Beta cassettes, but now, of course, it's here's a chip, here's a CD. Here's a DVD. It's all there. He, I guess, was channeling Marshall McLuhan and, and predicting what is now banal. Oh, it's a global village. Big deal. The medium is the message. Well, that's nothing new. Well, it was then, and in some ways it still is.
1: Now we see Brian Oblivion in his native habitat, his office, and we begin to discover the idea that videodrum somehow is involved with brain tumors, which makes Max... Quite nervous, as you could understand. Jack Creeley, enormously experienced and not someone that I thought I would ever be working with just because he did a lot of comedy, a lot of television comedy, was wonderful at that and did game shows and talk shows and all kinds of things. Of course, he did a lot of theater too, had the most wonderful voice and a terrific presence. And I can't remember when it hit me, but I thought, you know, Jack Creeley with a mustache, that voice, that presence, he is very close to Marshall McLuhan. Not so much in look, but in feel, in tone, in texture. And I was really wanting to find an actor to have that presence and charismatic quality that Marshall McLuhan had. I had a brain tumor, and I had visions. I believed the visions Cause the tumor
0: and not the reverse. Jack Creeley was one of the actors in the war room on Dr. Strangelove. I don't know how he got there, but uh, he's Canada's own. And uh, this was David's premise, kind of loosely based on the Marshall McLuhan concept of this enigmatic person who was eminently quotable and full of information and probably full of the truth. I mean, who knew? I must... Who's behind it what do they want I want you max
1: we begin to see that television in the world of Videodrome is very interactive and I suppose this is the part that makes people think that it really anticipated the internet because of course at the time this movie was made television was completely non-interactive The closest you would get to that would be playing video games on your TV set. And you can see here some primitive old controllers of the Atari type, I believe. But I guess I understood then somehow that television would
0: not remain inert and passive. This television was made with different air bladders and someone just kind of played this organ of keys that would uh, inflate bladders in a different sequence. So the whole thing was made out of rubber or plastic of some sort and it would expand and contract. We tested a lot of different things and because it was black, it needed to do something more than just be lit, it had to kind of glow. It was kind of difficult because we'd light the black rubber and then basically unlight the videotapes that were sitting on top.
1: This stuff is kind of primitive compared with what you can do with computer imagery. You know, it's literally a kind of a latex screen being blown out by compressed air and rear projected images on it, but it works. And uh, it has a tactility that you don't really get with computer imagery yet. And as I say, it really allows you to handle things sculpturally on the set rather than having a bunch of green screens around and not knowing what's going to appear on them until post-production when the actor is long gone and can no longer interact with them.
0: The actress on the left is Kay Hotry, who's the uh, Colleen Dewhurst of uh, Canadian actresses. I think everybody in Toronto who worked with David really enjoyed working with David. There were a lot of different directors at the time who were more or less conventional, and David was anything but that. And yet David is able to tell a story with pictures. And the more eloquent the story, the less the need for wild and crazy pictures. A lot of people have been seduced by camera movement and kind of irrelevant action for no apparent reason. The MTV method. And I think what he taught me as a filmmaker, I now judge other filmmakers by that yardstick. I don't think Canadians at that time were known for storytelling as much as documentary creating. And I think David's steps as as eager as they were as crazy as they were on Rabbit and crimes of the future and and then completely mainstream on, on fast company uh he knew how to do it all and was happy telling his own story in his own way how did you come to be exposed? working with david was complete joy because at that time he used the same uh, production designer same dp same editor same first ad and we we could communicate very well and i think that's how we could do a film in 35 days or whatever it was, tight schedules.
1: The tone of the hallucinations is determined by the tone of the tape's imagery. When we started to shoot this movie, I really didn't have the details of the plot completely worked out at all, as was often the case in those days when tax shelter money appeared before the script was really ready, but you had to go, you had to shoot at the end of the year when all the dentists and lawyers and accountants uh, needed a tax break, needed a tax write-off, and suddenly wanted to invest money in movies. So you'd go through the whole summer with no money uh, available for films. And then suddenly all this money would come in in September, October, November. And uh, the result was you often went into a shoot without the script really being completely worked out. And that was certainly the case with drums. So there was a lot of um, discoveries that I was making about the script while we were shooting on the set. It's not the most efficient way to do it. And it's not my preferred way. Um, but uh, I was interested to see when I watched this movie again for the first time in 25 years that it really seemed to make sense. I was pretty pleased about that because certainly when we were shooting, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense and had to be worked out during the course of the shoot, causing great confusion sometimes and consternation in terms of the producers and the schedule and so on.
0: Well, Victor Solnicki and Pierre David and Claude Aru were the producers of Video Drum, as they had been with Scanners. And Scanners, I think with the schedule, and plus it was shot in Montreal, things were very scripted, very broken down, everything was in its place. And Video Drum itself was much more evolutionary. So what would work one day on paper, Jimmy Woods would come up with something and, oh yeah, that's going to work, well why don't we try this and how about that? And suddenly we're somewhere else. And it's all a good thing, this is like making a sandcastle. It's just going to keep growing in perhaps ways you hadn't expected. Nonetheless, it wasn't going in the wrong direction, but for producers who were used to production reports, call sheets, total breakdowns on everything, cost reports, this was a little scary.
1: There were moments uh, on the set of Videodrum when I had to have a little talk with the crew and explain to them why things were so chaotic and disorganized, because I would, at times, end up going to one of our sets, perhaps, and then decide that I wasn't ready to shoot there. And so the crew, which would have lit the place and prepared it for shooting, would suddenly find me saying, no, we're not shooting here at all. They were wondering whether the movie was falling apart, the financing had fallen apart, was it really happening, was it not? Was something going on that was more than just the director trying to find the movie on the set, and especially people who had worked with me before because I didn't normally work that way. Here we see the post-death, post-mortality Dr. Oblivion who somehow is still alive, able to communicate directly with you even though physically he's long gone. And I suppose that you could say something about Marshall McLuhan too, that he still lives through his writings, through his concepts, through the interviews that he's done. He's just as much alive in a way now as he ever was and so too Professor Oblivion. A new outgrowth of the human brain. Which will produce and control hallucinations. I really kind of like reinventing the human body. And of course, it's being done all the time in perhaps more subtle ways, but there are a lot of people on this planet whose bodies are modified in ways that would seem unthinkable even just 10, 20, 30 years ago, never mind centuries ago. And it's all taken for granted. I mean, people with transplanted hearts, with transplanted kidneys, organs. And so we see a very provocative image from this movie that caused quite a lot of controversy, a kind of a surgical, vaginal opening.
0: At this point, he's now standing on the floor and underneath the coffee table, John Board, the first AD, is puppeting his phony knees and the, the couch and the fake body is on an upper floor. So Jimmy's just standing there with his phony body, and the blend line that Rick Baker put together was phenomenal. Now, at this point, he stood up, and there's a, it's all about the perspective of his body. His real right arm is behind him, and his phony right arm is, for want of a better word, in its proper place.
1: Technology isn't really effective it doesn't really expose its true meaning, I feel, until it has been incorporated into the human body. And most of it does, one way or another. Electronics, people wear glasses, they wear hearing aids that are really little computers, they wear pacemakers, they have their intestines modified. It's, it's really quite incredible what we've been able to do to, to the human body. And really to take it, Someplace that evolution on its own could not take it. Technology has really taken over evolution. We've seized control of evolution ourselves without really quite being conscious of it. It's no longer the environment that affects changes in the human body. It's our minds, it's our concepts, our technology that are doing that.
0: This was shot at a classic old Art Deco apartment on St. Clair with this little miniature crane. We craned down and this parking meter was in the way of the crane. So my grips were very helpful that night and just kind of leaned on it enough so that they pull it right out of the ground. Then we put it in the shot where we wanted it to be. So anything's possible in the film business.
1: I love shooting in Toronto streets. I live quite close to here actually where this was shot as a real potency, just as a novelist writing about his hometown, even if he doesn't live there, even if you're James Joyce and you're living in Italy but you're writing about Dublin. It's the same thing for me, to shoot in the streets of Toronto and then later to walk through those streets and feel the vibes from the films that I've made here. That was brought home to me when I met Roberto Benigni, the Italian director, comedian, actor, who said that he was terrified to walk in the streets of Toronto because he had only seen them in my movies until he came to the Toronto Film Festival and he found that the city was quite different than what he had seen in my films and that, in fact, it's a very congenial city and not a sinister, scary one. But it pleased me, of course, to hear that Toronto for a long time had been my version of Toronto that was in his head. Those were test
0: transmissions you picked up. Les Carlson... Playing Barry Convex is yet another talented uh, Canadian actor who plays character roles—good uh, guys, bad guys, all kind of guys. I'd done a film with him with a completely shaved head and aging makeup, playing David Milne, the famous Canadian artist who was not a member of the Group of Seven. And this was a real live uh, storefront on Queen Street East, on the other side of the river in uh, Riverdale. Of course, there's a lot of
1: seeing imagery image imagery in this movie and here we come to the kind of the most basic version of it which is glasses lenses seeing through rose-colored glasses there are many many phrases in english and in every language that have to do with seeing and the distortion of seeing through technology or through hallucination I've always had a fondness for scenes in which people try on glasses. I think I remember some from the TV series The Prisoner. There was a lovely scene there with Patrick McGowan. This is my version of it. But this is not just a kind of an eccentric choreography. It really, of course, has very much to do with what the movie's about. Ways of seeing, ways of distorting vision, and vision as not just seeing, but as vision, with a capital V,
0: I hope you realize you're playing with dynamite.
1: Now, Les Carlson, who plays Barry Convex, is really my kind of actor in particular. I mean, I have a great respect for him and love the kind of naturalness that he brings and the subtlety of undertone and overtone that he can bring to a character, make him innocent, naive, and then suddenly kind of sinister and quite scary. And I've worked with Les several times. He plays a role in The Fly, and most recently he uh, is in a short film that I did called Camera which is really pretty much less doing a very complex and difficult monologue. And I thought he was absolutely brilliant in it.
0: This is our prototype. This is the little number that started it
1: all. And so we come to the helmet, another device for seeing in a different way. I really did think of Barry Convex as a kind of Jim Baker character. Jim and Tammy Fay Baker were all the rage when I was writing this movie and i really always thought of them as being particularly sinister and i really wanted to cast an actor who somehow suggested jim baker tv evangelist because there's something behind all evangelism that i find very sinister very provocative very dangerous it was no surprise to me that jim baker ended up being a complete scumbag and scoundrel it seemed inevitable to me that he would be that and so to barry convex Barry's may be a little more sophisticated than Jim Baker was. And I think an analysis of one of your hallucinations would be the right place to start.
0: Once again, this perspective of analog versus the potential digital world, I think, is embodied in this incredible helmet. This was years before anyone approached something that they could term virtual reality. And yet David was coming up with these things and getting prop makers to build them put all these integrated circuits and uh, all the knickknacks on the outside. And just thinking into the future, how prescient it, it has become pretty real. At a time when Star Trek movies were as slick as they were with wall-to-wall carpeting everywhere, it was nice to have the future perspective as pretty gritty and grimy. And this thing was supposed to look like all the nuts and bolts and solder joints were still visible. And yet it was very high-tech.
1: Now, Jimmy Woods, at the time that we were making this movie, was extremely paranoid and always worried about them and they want to do this and they're going to fuck us and they're going to do this. And I don't know whether it's just his nature or we, he was going through a particularly paranoid phase. And I kept saying to him, on this shoot, there is no they. There's just us because I'm in control of this movie. There's no sort of production entity that's trying to force us to do this or that or hurry up the shoot or screw with the schedule, but he would not put on this helmet. He was worried that he would be electrocuted. I thought he was kidding, but he was serious. So that's me in the helmet right now. Those were my hands that you were seeing held up in front of the uh, lens, and it's me in this shot, because even though Carol Spear, my production designer who designed the helmet, put the helmet on for him, stood in a pool of water on the video drum set, and fired up the helmet to show him that he wouldn't be electrocuted, he wouldn't put on the helmet. So those are my hands, and I'm wearing Jimmy's clothes, but I really had to let the pants out at the back because Jimmy had really slim hips in those days, a lot slimmer than mine. It wasn't something that I had wanted to do to kind of pay homage to myself. It wasn't my Hitchcock moment. For Nikki, I really wanted a character who had her own charisma, her own strong screen presence, because, of course, she kind of morphs into more than just a person in the film. And Debbie Harry, I remember seeing her in a film called Union City, and I was convinced that she had what it took, even though I knew she was inexperienced. And also, her stage persona was very much in tune with Videodrome. And I thought, if anybody was feeling that because they knew Blonde, it would be the right kind of vibe in sync with this movie. Now, it should be mentioned that the main feature of the video drum set, the television set as we see it, was a red clay wall that was wet and electrified, that people would be electrocuted, touching, or at least given an electric charge. And although the redness of the clay, the red clay was my idea, The idea of an electrified clay wall was not my own idea. I actually saw a movie that I cannot for the life of me remember in which the Nazis had a torture chamber that involved an electrified wet clay wall. And I've never run across that film or a mention of that film since I first saw it. I must have been relatively young, but I always was fascinated by that idea and it, it sort of came back here on the Videodrome set. And you can see it behind Jimmy. And the sort of twisted handprints uh, and body prints of the people who had been tortured and when pushed up against that wall would be left in the wall. You can see it there's a kind of sculpture of pain and agony as it was in the movie that I had seen. The idea of waking up in bed with someone that you don't know, or at least that you didn't know you got into bed with, is a classic. I think it happens to a lot of people, especially ones who go to bars and get very drunk. The idea of waking up in bed with someone dead in the bed with you is also pretty classic. There must be something in the intimacy of being in bed with someone that is so violated by the idea of someone dead in your bed that uh, it has huge resonances. And I think it's from the beginning of literary times that this image recurs. Of course, the specifics of Masha dead and tortured are unique to this movie. But it has immense resonances in terms of strange hallucinatory fears that people have. There is a sense in which the thriller aspect of Videodrome, the complex plot, the conspiracy, does become in some strange way derailed in terms of normal narrative momentum by the fact that the movie becomes more and more subjective as the lead character becomes more and more subject to hallucination and loses touch with a reality that we would see if we were in his apartment, let's say, now. But I think that's one of the strengths of the movie, is that it doesn't flinch from that. It doesn't really give you an outside perspective on what's going on. You really are stuck with Max's brain. You are in Max's head in this movie. You might not realize it at the beginning of the movie, but you start to realize it more and more as you get into scenes like this.
0: David had distinct perspectives on everyone's kind of domain and uh, Max's apartment. Certainly at night was moonlit and a little colder. The color scheme in his apartment was definitely intentionally gray and blue and cold. And the video drum set, even though we mostly see it on video, was uh, much more warm. I think in terms of lighting, I was happy with most of the film except some of the scenes in Max's apartment. I don't know if it was a schedule or just the limitations on grid or just my own brain power, but... I would have loved to have printed things differently or balanced them differently. I got into Venetian slats with a Fresnel, a 10K Fresnel. I kind of kept running with it. I felt I had to get it out of my system. I don't know, all these Venetian blind shadows, that's what the apartment came with, and I try to be as evocative as possible. Documentary background to pulling things out of a source. Also at a time when film stocks did not have the, the shadow detail and the latitude. And uh, as good as Kodak stock is, this was shot with ASA 100. Most films I shoot now are shot with ASA 320 or 500. So lighting a set ended up using instruments that started at 2,000 watts and going to 5Ks and 10 k Now it's pretty common to light sets with fluorescent tubes and 150-watt uh, peppers.
1: You're right. It's momentum. I'm running like an express train here. I don't know how to stop. Look, I'll meet you in the lab in one hour, okay? And then... Uh,
0: the glass block was great because it glowed in all directions. The black door was not so great. And I had to hide a lot of things and, and pull sources out of places that were somewhat unexpected. I know that. it's never just where the money, is You want a cup of coffee? No, look, I'll meet you in the in an hour. I think David's very comfortable offsetting tension and horror and, uh, in Jimmy's case, raw sarcasm with humor. Because if you take someone away from a relentless storyline, if it's uh, what I call latex or rubber movies where everyone's turning into something, if, if you can step them away from that into something funny, then you can scare people again. I have this theory about lighting that if you shoot every scene that's dark, dark, dark and moody, eventually people can see in the dark and you can't turn the lights off anymore. If you have the kitchen, the bathroom, the hospital room, the classroom... Uh, the kids tree for it everything is dark and scary there's no place left but if you have scenes that have light then the lights are turned off in other scenes you can actually create more mystery did you see me on video drum there was no tape there was no video drum transmission last night the nice thing about peter dvorsky he's always he at that time had played kind of characters and was always a likable guy and he's a definitely a likable quirky guy in this the more likable the better because he ends up being much more sinister in the end. I'm out of my depths now, patron. I have to bring in the reinforcements. Max. An intriguing combination. <laughs> Very interesting. Don't let me interrupt. I think I was
1: saying And now we get the the truth the startling truth about Videodrome, which is that it isn't a broadcast video. It's not a broadcast situation at all, but that it's a conspiracy specifically, in this case, against Max. Now, of course, I have to say, I guess if Jimmy was paranoid while we were making this movie, it's partly because of playing this character. Everything does end up being a conspiracy against him. So maybe it was just Jimmy Woods' version of the method
0: In this film, I think Jimmy Woods brought a lot more to the role of Max Wren than David had expected, and it was fun to watch this evolution of both of them because they were outwitting each other a lot. Jimmy would contribute a lot, and and David would uh, absorb that. So I think the evolution of both their performance and screenwriting and directing was very symbiotic, and it it was great to see it reach the level that it did. But why would anybody watch it? Why would anybody watch a scum show like Drone? Why did you watch it, Max? The premise for this was that underneath this whole conspiracy of debauched uh, satellite programming was a man of the cloth drawing in the right people in order to eliminate them. And I guess it's not that far from the truth. The Moral Majority, what a name. The best way it, for the Moral Majority to operate is to get rid of the immoral minority. And what better way to do it than with television? So Max was supposed to be part of this great empire. Quite the shakedown. Lots of conflict. Right, it's funny to, to see all these old machines and that whole stack of uh, two-inch tapes over his shoulder. Now savage, it's... New time. these are all dinosaurs. And we're going to have to be pure and direct and strong if we're going to survive them.
1: And here we see, of course, that Harlan and Barry are representatives of the moral right and that they see it as their duty to destroy perverse liberals like Max. I didn't really know that the film would get political when I started to write it, but it did get, in a subtle way, quite political. And I didn't really stack the deck very heavily in favor of Max because I've never portrayed Max as being without fault, without flaw, without his own perverseness and contradictions. I never really think in terms of a character being sympathetic or not sympathetic. It's just, to me, that's a kind of Hollywood way of thinking, and I don't think that way. I want the character to be interesting, maybe charismatic, depending, of course, on the story, and someone that you can fall into and that you find fascinating. As a moviegoer, I've never felt that I have to find a character sympathetic. Certainly, you can find a character so grating and annoying that you don't want to watch this character anymore. But to me, that's not, that's not really what people mean when they say sympathetic
0: or non-sympathetic. Here it comes, the wind is blowing... So this whole premise was very interesting. We just cut a hole in the door and a weird little slant board that that Jimmy would lie on with his phony body kind of built on his shoulders and would drop to the floor. And he kind of held onto the doorknob and pushed himself back against the door. And then we put on the whole rubber slit body and he'd fall away from the thing. Very elementary stuff, but uh, very effective when it's cut together.
1: Now, is this what television is doing to you? It's basically getting fucked by television which I think everybody is. I remember one particular point, Jimmy was complaining a lot about the difficulties of walking around with this stomach slit prosthesis and what he had to do at the door when his stomach is is sort of opening and and cassettes are being inserted. And he said to Debbie, uh, I happened to be around when he said it, he said to Debbie, you know, I've ceased being an actor. I'm now only just the bearer of the slit. And Debbie said, now you know what it's like. And I thought that was extremely funny. So there was a lot of humor on the set, a lot of give and take. And uh, that's why it worked. I mean, Jimmy was, he was up for anything. course, we see that the gun was just kind of incubating. It didn't disappear at all. It's ready to be pulled out at any moment. And that tends to be the case with people who feel that way about their guns. Now, this is something that probably would have been done by CGI, had it existed, but I really love the the Rick Baker effect here, which is is basically puppetry. Uh, But there's a there's a certain lack of slickness to the effect but there's also a certain palpable quality to it it's sculptural it's physical you can feel that it was really there that we were all seeing it that we're really filming it and that has weight i don't regret that we had to do it this way
0: i guess at the time we shot this film this was kind of groundbreaking for david because shivers and rabid and scanners would have been a little more cerebral, and this was now much more visceral. And the fact that he had Rick Baker come in and, and create all these things and pull them off, the flesh cassette, the slit in the stomach, this flesh gun, the whole armature thing, and these were kind of first run. that We would just shoot the rehearsal, because who knew what was going to happen? we get two cameras on it and press the button, and quite often they worked the first time.
1: When you're working on what, in effect, would be considered today an independent film, an independent film with a lot of special effects but also a lot of complex dialogue, you can always use more time. You can always use more money. Uh, the money is time. I mean, really, the thing that I'm interested in, money buying, when I'm shooting a film, is time. It's not toys, uh, it's not necessarily effects. It's, it's the time to deal with everything, to, to consider things and to reconsider them while you're shooting. I've never used storyboards. For me, directing is a very sculptural and tactile thing. I need to really be there with the real actors and the real set and, and, and the costumes and so on. I need to feel them and touch them and move them around the set and get their input and collaborate. In other words, I couldn't sit in the room before I'd actually even cast the film, before I'd seen the real locations and decide... I will use a 35 millimeter lens for this shot and it'll be over here looking that way. To me, that that's just, just, I don't understand that. It's not movie making as far as I'm concerned. So the only time I've ever done storyboards is when uh, there were complex effects, sequences like some in the fly so that everybody knew what was being asked and the special effects guys could feel comfortable that they wouldn't be asked to do things on the spur of the moment that they weren't prepared for. But really for me as a director, it's time to do that, to block a scene on the set and so on. That's what I really want. I can't really say that, uh, I think in Videodrome, the residue of my memory of it is that there was time, that, that we had enough of a budget, that we had adequate time. And in particular, because of my own failing to completely have a prepared script, although as I say, part of that had to do with the momentum of financing the film. So I, I really can't blame myself too much for that because it wasn't my choice to do it that way. But There are only a few moments in in any of the films that I've made that I can say it's bad because I didn't have enough money or enough time. I've always felt that it was part of being a good director to anticipate problems that you would have and to stay away from situations, to not put yourself in an untenable position where you didn't have the budget or the time to do the work properly. There are accidents that happen that you can't foresee, but there are only a few scenes or even shots that I would point to in a movie and say, this isn't good and it wasn't my fault. I have to say that it's pretty much all my fault. I like that nice flowing shot through the back alleys of downtown Toronto. I have to say that I really was surprised at how smoothly done this movie was. I was pretty pleased with myself when I saw it again just recently because I remember it as being much rougher and less controlled and less focused and so on. And really, I see all kinds of little cinematic things, little camera moves and lighting things and choreographical things that please me even now. And I don't always have that reaction when I see my old movies, which I tend never to do unless I'm forced to because I'm doing a commentary like this. In this case, it was a, a kind of a pleasant surprise seeing the movie again. This scene worried Jimmy a little bit because I, I believe he, in his youth, actually permanently injured one of his hands when it went through a window or the glass panel of a door. So it, was, it brought that, just that simple scene of breaking the window. Brought a lot of that back for him. And of course, being in his paranoid state, it was a bit of an issue, but not much of one. We had him break it with his elbow instead of his fist, which I think I originally wanted. I have to say, I think Marker went to. Wonderful shooting in this movie. We had worked together several times, and I think he did a beautiful job, particularly on this very difficult project. Difficult because, although in some ways it's very realistic, in other ways it's very internal and
0: fantastic. You've come to kill me. No. David and I never had a talk about the look of Videodrome. The only look meeting we ever had was about the dead zone when he said, make it look like Norman Rockwell shot it. I think the look of Videodrome evolved the same way that, that characters evolved. There's the script was written and rewritten, and it, it wasn't growing like Topsy. It wasn't going to collapse. It was really coming to a, a peak. And I think I was as wide open on a photographic level as David was, on the literary and probably sensory level. And when we get to some scenes that should look real in the cathode ray mission, everything was lit, sunlit. TV sets, other scenes in, in his apartment where things are lit out of the TV set. A lot of it is source lit and then we tried to fool around with, with different things in, in the cathode ray mission at night where he runs around with his flesh gun. I wanted to get a much harder edge, darker shadows and so that it went from fully lit, introducing the place, so the audience can see what was there and then coming back again and it's much, much darker. These are kind of elementary cinematographic things. It's not that big a deal. I was much more wide open to the angles and the, the cut points and the eye lines to, to help strengthen the character perspective of telling the story. I teach a lot of workshops in cinematography and lighting, and I tell everybody to do the same thing. Just That should all be in your back pocket. Everything about exposure, about lighting, these things you got to put away and look at the actor's eyes, look at how they move, look at how they interact, and help tell the story that way.
1: Well, and we know that television sets shoot back. Certainly the internet does. That's better. So much better. Sonia Smiths was, I felt, uh, a sort of up-and-coming Canadian actress who I'd seen in a couple of things and felt that she had the strength to stand up to Jimmy Woods in terms of being strong and articulate and intelligent. And who could also deliver on screen a kind of subtext, you know, a feeling that things were going on in her that she wasn't quite coming out with. And at the same time have that emotionality, a a kind of a very specific, unusual emotionality that the daughter of the dead Professor Oblivion would have, carrying on in the tradition of her father. And as I recall, because of the fluidity of this production, uh, I think... As I worked with Sonia, I gradually increased her role and gave her many more things to do. And she was really kind of a, an inspiration in terms of uh, expanding the part of Brian Oblivion's daughter and what she had to say and her role in Videodrome. So it was really a fortunate kind of convergence of many aspects of uh, what, what she was doing as a performer that encouraged me to develop that role
0: only 26 hours ago in the building you see behind me that a bizarre apparently motiveless shooting occurred which has triggered off an intensive manhunt by Metro Police 34 year old Max Wren, president of the Civic
1: TV Corporation. so Max under the control of Videodrome is he under the control of the TV program or is he under the control of the movie Videodrome we don't know as a Canadian independent filmmaker I hadn't really had much to do with real Hollywood studios. And Videodrome, ironically and strangely, became my first studio picture in the sense that Universal Pictures was involved before the film was finished. Somehow it is quite mysterious to me why Universal, which was then considered the most conservative Hollywood studio, would be at all involved in this very strange movie, which didn't have a complete script, but what script there was, was obviously pretty radical and pretty extreme and very censorable and, and not what you'd expect from a mainstream studio. And suddenly I was dealing with people like Verna Field and Tom Mount who were executives at Universal, and I found it <laughs> really quite strange to the extent even that we did a preview in Boston I had never done a studio-type preview where people were given cards and people were invited to studios and you flew to a strange city in order to kind of get a neutral reaction to the film. This was all very alien to me, and uh, the Boston screenings were disastrous. There was a transit strike, the weather was terrible, and my editor and I had done something that I tend to do, which is we'd cut the film so brutally that it was about 75 minutes long and completely incomprehensible. However incomprehensible you might think it is now, it was much more so then. And we just had this disastrous preview with cards that said, I hate your fucking movie, you know. <laughs> it was, it was, I thought, oh my god, this is, this, I've, I, this is a complete disaster, they're gonna destroy this film. But in fact, Tom Mount and Verna were really very supportive and sweet and said you know let's figure out how to fix this and the fix really pretty much amounted to putting back in stuff that i had taken out so it was all very exciting and depressing and and interesting but i survived it and the movie somehow got released and didn't do well but uh, it did endure somehow because of whatever it had to offer i think i was always aware that many of my films if not most of my films would have a greater life at first, I thought, on television and then later on videotape and, of course, now DVD. I think it's because of the intimacy of the films in a strange way. I even composed them so that they could be shown on a television screen without being panned and scanned and cropped and so on. Open up to me. Of course, it's tempting to conjecture what would actually be going on in this scene if you were seeing it not through Max's eyes. Would he just be coming with his little Walther PPK, and assassinating Harlan, whom he thinks was involved in a conspiracy with him, or would he be, what would be actually going on in the scene? But I don't give anybody the perspective to see it. I see it's strictly a subjective movie at this point. You see that what you feel in your guts can become quite a weapon. In this case, it's meant to be a World War One potato masher, which is a common name given to a hand grenade of the World War One type. <laughs> and there's the pun, of course. It is a, literally a hand grenade.
0: Having studied David from the beginning, from stereo and Crimes of the Future and Shivers and Rabbit, and then I got a chance to work with him, on a drag racing movie that led to The Brood with Oliver Reed and The Scanners. I think *Video Drum* was the first film where he ended up dealing more on a, on a performance level and had worked with uh, actors in a different way that he now had the perception of being less of a, of a horror meister and more of an actor's director. But now I think he's known more for his more cerebral outlook than a horror outlook to filmmaking. Well, I must admit at this stage of the game, we were ready for anything. So it was it was with a wink and a nod that we would go to this. This was out of the airport at some hotel. And uh, was kind of this convention center concept. So it had to be as lurid as possible as a real sales thing with the sparkling lights. And so we lit it all up. It was kind of a Technicolor thing. And they went nuts with the wardrobe. But this was when you kind of have to step back. And, and, and in a way, what's the point? You know, if you're working for Orson Wells, he's going to say, this is what I want. And you're going to do it because it's in his mind, and this is the case with David.
1: The whole idea of the Renaissance trade show dance and the idea of Medici and da Vinci really came from the phrase, the eye is the window of the soul, which is a medieval concept, conceit. And uh, as, a, as a good medievalist, I, I remember that and thought in terms of applied now to the, the idea, literally, that when you look in someone's eyes, you really get some idea of what their soul was like. And I think in the Middle Ages, they meant that literally, not figuratively. And I thought that given the idea of television, looking into television and having the television look back at you, And especially if you're someone, as I am, who often is flipping channels and does see himself on television talking to himself, talking to me, this is always a very spooky thing. I really thought that that would be a good theme for the spectacular optical show, so that Barry Convex's show has resonances, even though, once again, it's basically a tacky trade show. Even though I said that that quote is medieval, nonetheless, um, the costumes are more renaissance It's kind of the, what would happen if trade show types got pretentious.
0: Love comes in at the eye, and the eye is the window of the soul.
1: I suppose, in a way, this is my version of Taxi Driver. It, it just occurred to me, the idea of a sort of public assassination by a man who's, in the case of Taxi Driver, not exactly hallucinating, but paranoid, almost to the point of hallucination. This is just going that one hallucinatory step further. Or backward, I guess, it depends on your perspective. (laughs) This is brilliant effects work by Rick Baker. Horrific in the extreme. A lot of it was cut, I think, for the initial release. And all done physically on the set with a... It's basically, once again, complex puppeteering with a bunch of guys under the set Making all this happen, but really fantastically done.
0: We had about 25 people with these flesh mittens on, and they were underneath, probing their hands upward to so these animated guts coming out of his head. And and uh, I don't know the other people with their hands in the air. It was quite an elaborate thing. I think that's why Rick had fun with this, because David would come up with these ideas, and Rick, yeah, 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 and he'd build it. I've done a lot of uh, latex movies, effects movies. It's still it's cinematic storytelling. And that's what's important. We certainly beat up his little leather jacket, though. This long last day of shooting, the producer said to David, we have no idea how this film was going to end. Only you do. But no matter what happens, today is the last day of shooting. So in this scene where he sneaks into this boatyard, this was the end of the last day of shooting. This was my gaffer's tugboat, the salvage prince, down at the turning basin uh, in the harbor. But we began the day in the, the sock factory uh, set lit it all choreographed it or blocked it all was ready to go the last minute david said no you know this is just not working what so he wrote something else we packed up we moved somewhere else we were had it all lit ready to go it's now four or five in the afternoon you know this isn't working either so we ended up at the harbor at jock's tugboat we originally did this entire scene in the hold of the tugboat and uh thankfully got to reshoot it in a set, which looked exactly like the hole of the tugboat. It was twice the size.
1: Max is heading to a fate that uh, I've noticed that many of my leading characters end up having to endure. And I suppose that's the existentialist part of me because I'm thinking that's the fate that everybody ends up enduring, which is to die. Not always, of course, by suicide, but in Max's case, it will be suicide. Perhaps the final victory of video Videodrome is that you cause violence not to other people, but to yourself. A television program that could cause people to commit suicide, well, I think we've seen the influence of this movie in Japanese films like The Ring and quite a few other movies. The atmosphere of decay is very strong and gives you a lot of textures and whether it's rust or rot or whatever, it's, um, I seem to be drawn to those kind of images. My house isn't like this, though. My house is much cleaner than this.
0: I think everyone was searching for the end of the movie, and and David no no less than anyone else, but uh, since he was our fearless leader, we were fearlessly following him. And story-wise, it all made sense that someone who had so much to lose would end up having lost it all sitting on a ratty little mattress. But when all else fails and you think you're alone in the world, can't even get a cigarette, what is there to comfort you? And the answer is a television.
1: I've learned a lot since I last saw you. The ending of the film, which now seems perfect to me, was not necessarily the first ending that I wrote. And I think I considered quite a few different endings, uh, having something happen to Max after he had shot himself in that fantasy. And then it would be a fantasy suicide, not a real suicide. And then you would see the, the new flesh in action. And at one point, I remember asking the actors if they would be willing to do a kind of strange mutant orgy in which we would give them all strange new sexual organs and that they would be having sex using these organs. And all of the actors kind of agreed that they would do that. But then when I really tried to think it through, I thought, you know, that's going to be silly. It's not going to work. And I actually don't think it's the right ending to the movie. So there was that. I did, however, want... Nikki Brand to be part of the ending of the movie and I wanted Debbie Harry's presence somehow in the end of the film and that's when I came up with the idea of the television set that appears with, with her on it in the same way that Brian Oblivion would, would appear uh, on television everywhere she, she would now take over that role for Max become his own kind of strange kind of muse, a guide to the other world, to the, the world of the new Flash.
0: So when we originally shot this, David came up with the idea that we had to have this TV not only explode and expel its innards, but the innards, now that it was a flesh TV, had to be intestines and other body parts. So at three in the morning when we were in this hole of this tugboat, where do we get these body parts? And anyone who's familiar with the east end of Toronto knows the smell of Canada Packers. So literally follow your nose up Commissioner Street and get a whole barrel full of pig guts, and they put it in this TV set and exploded it.
1: I think we had to do a lot of different variations of this. (laughs) I think we tried real pig guts and real guts and real intestines and compressed air and God knows what else to make that shot happen. It was messy and it took a long time. The idea that you can have television with you wherever you go, and interactive television at that has really come to pass only in the last few years, what with mobile phones, with cell phones on which you can access the internet, but it's all here in Videodrome. We never have to be without so the much quoted phrase, long live the new flesh, becomes rather mysterious here. Does it mean a physical life after death? Does it mean the new technological bodies, the bodies that incorporate technology that we are developing and continue to develop? As a card-carrying existentialist, I have to say, it doesn't mean physical life after death. And so for me, this is a kind of a potent moment in the movie, I, I still find it that it gets to me in a strange deep level. You had, as I said, this very conservative studio, Universal, distributing a very not conservative movie. And it would be easy for me to say that they didn't understand it and therefore didn't distribute it properly, but it's never been my strong suit sort of understanding distribution and marketing. I really don't know what it was. Videodrome, obviously, was a difficult film to market. But on the other hand, it's had a a very long and very strong life in other media. And in a way, that didn't surprise me, although you always hope that your film is going to be, I always hope that my film will be successful uh, right out of the box. And I always have those fantasies. You know, Videodrome, number one movie in North America, grosses $200 million. I mean, why not? Except for the fly, that fantasy never came true. Um, And yet one lives in hope.